morning, TCC. Good to see everyone here. I am. Uh, I'm, I'm excited to tell you that um, that we, the staff and elders, have developed a plan based on the plan and an adjustment based on the adjustments and another change based on the changes that is going to get some things kicked up around here soon. So um, later today, by tomorrow, we'll have uh, on our website our new uh, response plan that's related to the different risks that the state issues and should we stay where we're at or go back down to level one uh, beginning two weeks on the 16th of August. We're going to relaunch our nursery and preschool ministries. In addition to that, we are going to add our elementary kids into that mix, and we are going to also begin our student ministry uh, of our junior and senior high that Sunday. So we're excited about that, ready to get some things back into uh, just opportunities to, to pour uh, God's word into our people, into our kids. Uh, once again, I know you families have been struggling, and we've heard that, and I've been working to try to get something that we can just um, make sure we are keeping everybody safe, but also make sure we are doing our highest priority, which is being the church. All right, so a couple of weeks we're going to do that. We're also in discussion about what's the best way to relaunch our adult education ministry, what we're going to do with small groups in the fall. So there's still more work to do, but a lot of work has done to, been done particularly this week to try to put the pieces together to keep everyone safe, but still move forward with our vision of being church. Um, in first service, Kathleen and Chuck Staley were with us. This is uh, this was their last Sunday. Okay? They're moving to Florida, becoming Floridians. They're moving down um, close to their daughter Stephanie in the Sarasota area. So if you would like, uh, contact me. We're going to load a truck on Thursday evening, and I would like you to contact them just to uh, show your appreciation for them. They've been around for a long, long, long time. And Kathleen has been especially involved in our women's ministry, our drama ministry, several things over the years. So take a chance to just look up that phone number and give them a, give them a call if you would. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, as we begin our message, I want you to listen to this letter. It was written by a West Virginia farm kid during Marine basic training on Paris Island back to the parents. And it, it, wrote, it read like this, Dear Ma and Pa, I am well, hope you are. Tell Brother Walton, Brother Elmer, the Marine Corps beats working for Old Man Minch by a mile. Tell them to join up quick before all the places are filled. That's not like the letter that I got from my daughter back from Marine Corps boot camp. Says, I was restless at first because you get to stay in bed till nearly 6 a.m., but I'm getting used to sleeping late. Tell Walton Elmer, all, the, all you do before breakfast is smooth your cot, and shine some things. No hogs to slop, no feed to pitch, no mash to mix, no wood to split, no fire to lay, practically nothing. So as men got a shave, but it's not so bad, there's warm water. Breakfast was strong on the trimmings like fruit juice, cereal, eggs, and bacon, but weak on chops and potatoes, ham, steak, fried eggplant, pie, and other regular food. But tell Walt and Elmer, you can always sit by the two city boys who live on coffee. Their food plus yours will get you through till lunch, where they feed you again. Right? It's no wonder these city boys can't walk much. We go on long route marches, which the platoon sergeant says 
or long walks to harden us. If he thinks so, it's not my place to tell him any different. A route marches about as far as our house to the mailbox back home. Then the city boys, well, their feet get sore, so we all ride back in trucks. <laughs> As the sergeant is like a school teacher, he nags a lot. The captain is like the school board. Majors and colonels, well, they just ride around and frown a lot. They don't bother anyone. The next will kill Walt Elmer with laughing. <clears throat> wrote, I keep getting medals for shooting. I don't know why. The bullseye is near as big as a chipmunk head. And don't move, and it ain't shooting back at you like the Higgins boys back home. All you got to do is lie there all comfortable and hit it. You don't even have to load your own cartridges. They come in boxes. Then we have what they call hand-to-hand -hand combat training, where you get to wrestle with them city boys. I have to be real careful, though. They break pretty easy. It ain't like fighting with that old bull at home. I'm about the best they got in this, except for Tug Jordan over in Silver Lake, who signed up about the same time I did. I'm only 5'6", 130 pounds. He's 6'8", weighs nearly 300 pounds dry. Well, be sure to tell Walt Elmer, Elmer to, to hurry and join before other fellers get onto this setup and come stampeding in. Signed, your loving daughter, Alice. Perspective, right? Perspective, it's a wonderful thing. I want you to turn to the book of Ezra. Now, in the book of Ezra, as we started last week, God moved, we read King Cyrus, King Cyrus of Persia, to send the Jews back to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple and to begin offering sacrifices again to Jehovah. Now, secular history tells us that he did this to many different people groups because the king of Babylon before him had been so difficult on people that he would move people back to the area they came from rebuild the temples, let them worship their gods as a way to earn their favor, because in his mind, wherever they lived, it was still all a part of his empire, so it was all good. Now, we also read that God moved many spirits of many Jews to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And when they arrived, listen, they met the idea of perspective. We're going to discover that some of them who returned remembered what it was like, while others um, had an awakening. They were no longer in a city or in a place that was thriving. Instead, they were at a place that had become desolate. And I love what happens next because you can't um, you can't say this very often of Israel. When we read through the history, all the things that led up to their being in captivity in the first place. All throughout their history, you can't say this, but in this group, we can say at this point, they got first things first. They, when they went back, in Ezra chapter 2, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the musicians were moved along with others as a part of this first round of the people who returned to Jerusalem from Babylon. They came supplied with gold and silver from the people of Persia. But listen and look at what we read chapter 2, verses 68 and 69. It says, when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Okay, now that's a, that's a bit of a stretch. Remember, the city and the temple had been desecrated. I mean, they had been destroyed. So then they arrived to the place where the house of the Lord was. is probably more like that. Some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. 
according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 derricks. That is 1,100 pounds of gold. 5,000 minas, that's three tons of silver and 100 priestly garments. Okay? Let me just stop here for just a moment to remind us. Because in this series, as we're looking at Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to read a lot of scripture. Okay? And I want us all to understand that, that the words that I read from scripture are the most important words that will be said from this platform all morning. Is the word of God. There's a beautiful picture of this that we're going to encounter in the book of Nehemiah when Ezra, the scribe, returns to, um, to Israel, to, returns to Jerusalem. Right now, these things he's writing probably from notes that were taken meticulously by the people who came forth. Um, so this book, but ultimately we'll meet Ezra in the book of Nehemiah. So, now, like if you would think, if you were going back to this totally destroyed city and this totally destroyed temple, and as we saw last week, there were 5,000, over 5,000 articles of silver and gold just that belonged in the temple, plus the offerings that were given by the neighbors and the people of Persia, you would think that you might expect them to first work on a, maybe a safe, okay, or some kind of structure to protect this gold and the silver and their assets and all of those type of things. But that's not what happened. Instead, we find first thing they did was offer to God and His work. And then, they, once they settled in their towns, okay, the towns were of their ancestry, then we read that the first thing they did after giving an offering is found in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. Read with me there. It says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their hometowns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then Joshua, son of Jozadak, and his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, son of Sheltiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of God, the altar to, of the God of Israel, to sacrifice burnt offerings on it, in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Despite their fear and the people around them, they built an altar on its foundation, meaning it's going to be a new temple, but where the old temple was, this is where the old altar was. They built that new altar and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both morning and evening sacrifices. Okay? Now, if you're thinking logically, like this would be like building the kitchen table before you built the house, okay? or even before you built the kitchen itself, but how it must have pleased God to see that the first thing his people did was to give him an offering, and then after that, to reconnect with him by building the altar and beginning to offer sacrifices once again. It reminds us, don't miss the picture, like worship was at the center of their efforts, including confession and repentance and worship through singing and the offering of sacrifices and giving. And it's a good reminder that even back in the Old Testament times, the New Testament principle is still in effect. When Jesus died on the cross, okay, we know that, that God met with the priest during the Old Testament, the Holy of Holies. Do you remember when Jesus died on the cross, that the curtain was torn from top to bottom and it was torn in two? Because the temple was no longer necessary. We no longer needed a priest. God 
seem to be one-on-one -on -one with us as his people. In fact, we read in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 3, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look, God's place is now, his dwelling place is now among the people. He will dwell with them. They will be his God. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So meanwhile, these newly returned followers to Jerusalem were trusting that the God who led them there, that he would protect them despite their fear of the people around them. So once the worship was in place, and once the sacrifices were in place, they turned their attention to the temple. After the altar was built, they began the sacrifices. Look down at verse 7. It says, Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters, and gave food and drink and olive oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as author authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, now understand Zerubbabel, um, he was their governor. But if they were a nation, he, he would be their king. He was the grandson of King Jehoiakim, come down from um, royal lineage. Okay? And he was their leader. And then you have, um, next to him, you have Joshua. Now Joshua, we read, was from the line of Aaron, the line of high priest. So they had a king and a high priest there, even though they didn't function quite that way. And it says then, and the rest of the people, the priests and the Levites, and all who returned from the captivity to Jerusalem, they began the work. Okay? For generations, and you don't miss this, right? You read through Old Testament history, you read through all the things leading to this, and literally for generations, the kings and the leaders of the people of Israel had led them away from God. They led them into rebellion. They led them into idolatry. How refreshing, refreshing it must have been for God to see his leader and his priest actually leading God's people back to obedience to God's word. Pick up in verse 10. It says, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments with trumpets and the Levites with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, He is good. His love for Israel endures forever. Okay, now, that could be from a number of the Psalms, perhaps Psalm 136 that's repeated often. And all the people, it says, gave a great shout of praise to the Lord. Because the foundation for the house of the Lord is laid. Okay, now, in the midst of all this separation, we're going to find once again, a section that brings us to think, that gives us perspective. It's kind of the theme that we're looking at, this perspective piece. Look at chapter 3, continue on to verses 12 and 13. It says, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, they wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. While many others shouted for joy, no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far off. What do you think about these older priests, these older Levites, the older family heads who probably once lived in Israel? 
but who were taken as children to Babylon, Syria, and now returning. And their perspective, like they remembered the temple of Solomon in all its glory. And they remembered the city of Jerusalem in all its glory. And they remembered the nation of Israel, which was feared by all in all its significance of all of that seemed gone at that moment. And they wept. Well, I hope they also remembered that the glory was all gone because of their own sin and their own stubbornness. It wasn't a random act. It wasn't just that one kingdom got bigger and overthrew them. It's that God withdrew his protection and allowed them to be captured and sent into captivity to teach them a lesson because of their sin and their stubbornness. Now, you and I know that gets difficult in our lives when we see someone, or we are someone, who used to be healthy and vibrant, and they become um, helpless and very weak, especially if that someone is someone that we love and is kind. It's very difficult. So imagine these older priests remembering what was while being in the middle of what had been. If you can do that, you'll understand why they wept. And yet, it says for many, I think if not most, because that would have had to have been a pretty small group. Remember, they were in Babylon for 70 years. So many, if not most of the others, from them there were shouts of joy. Because God was refreshing this nation, he had not abandoned them. In fact, he was birthing a new chapter in their history. God, again, was on the move, and the evidence of his blessing was being unfolded right before their eyes. Now, I think the words in verse 13, and the sound was heard far away, are fairly significant at this point, because soon enough, we're going to see that the enthusiasm that they have is going to fade. And their momentum is going to disappear, and they're going to lose their vision. Now, I want you to, on your own, read. I've listed a number of, uh, a section of scripture in your outline, okay? All the first six chapters of Ezra and the two chapters in the book of Haggai. Read that for background and figure out what is going on around, and you're going to understand that everything comes to a halt, right? And I want us to think for a minute, because it just fits with where we're at in the scriptures, to ask the question, why does the vision fade? Why does vision fade? Now, we, we talked about last week that after the work began, after all this enthusiasm, after all the hoopla and the celebration and the worship and the offerings, the project goes on hold for 16 Years. It'll be 16 years from this point to when the temple is completed in Ezra chapter 6. And I want to give you some reasons why, two really, two reasons why it happened, why vision faded for them, and if we're not careful, why it will for us as well, based on what we find in Ezra and in Haggai. Okay? Now, the first thing we find in Ezra when we flip the page to chapter 4 is that their vision fades because of opposition. Okay? Simple enough to understand, hard to push through. 
The celebration, it says, was heard far away, and it moved the enemies of Israel to action. Look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, when it says, When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God. Important word there. And have been sacrificing to him since the time of Ezrahaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Okay? Now it seems innocent enough. I mean, the word enemies in, in verse 1 ought to be our clue. All right? And that's telling enough. But read on. Look at verse 3. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. Ye alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Okay? Now, if you're on the fence and you don't really know, and because we don't, all we have is what we read there, are they really friends or not? Are they enemies or not? Look down at verse 4, and we find out. It says, the true colors come out. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials, probably the Persian government officials, to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and Darius, king of Persia. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of Ezra chapter 4 um, just this morning. If, if you, you realize Ezra wrote this book, so right now he, he doesn't come on the scene till that third wave of people come back, and so far we've only had one. But he's a scribe, he's a historian, so he is um, taking the notes of those who wrote down what happened, and he's creating this story for us of what's happening with the people of God. But in Ezra chapter 4, a big chunk of it, he reflects to a different time in Israel's history under King Artaxerxes, when there's more opposition. Okay, So we'll just set that aside for the moment, because it's not in the timeline that we're talking about. We go down to verse 24. The real conclusion of their effort says, thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill okay, until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. <clears throat> now let me just give you a side note um, explanation about these Samaritans because we have a sense of who they are in the New Testament. We, we know they're seen as outcasts. We know that oftentimes because there was a, a heavy degree of prejudice that the Israelites would walk around Samaria instead of somehow polluting themselves by walking through their area. It sounds like you know, like, um, like elementary school recess, right, <laughs> type of a thing. And that Jesus um, made a profound statement when he walked through Samaria and had interactions with a Samaritan woman at a well. Okay, well, the Samaritans uh, did live in Samaria. But think about when... Israel was captured and taken captive by um, yeah, by one of those Greeks, <laughs> the Assyrians, that's it. All right, so the Assyrians, when they would take someone captive, they would take the lion's share of the people from that area and they would deport them. They would take them into captivity and disperse them to other areas they had conquered. Well, they would also backfill that area with people from areas they had conquered. So the people that moved into Samaria when Israel was taken out of there um, 
were from other nations, and they worshipped other gods. And God had already told his people not to intermarry with other nations that worshipped other gods, but that's exactly what happened. These people who moved into the area, well, they married the remaining Israelites. And so now the group, or the area was populated by people who worshipped many gods, a pantheon of gods. They worshipped Jehovah, but they also worshipped all these other gods. And so the Samaritans were looked down upon because they weren't true to Jehovah alone. They didn't worship God alone. And that's why um, they were looked down on with disdain by the Israelite people, really not considered actual followers of God. In fact, the Jews would have considered them adversaries, not allies of Jehovah. Now, Think about this opposition. I mean, certainly individually, and we could say collectively, all of us have experienced opposition. Right? When you're trying to move forward into the life that God has called you to live as his person, or we as his people, when progress is being made, when we're starting to become more like Jesus and followers of his, well, opposition comes. But let's think about the opposition that comes and what we know about it. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6 these words. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly understand that although opposition usually comes with a face, right? Satan is our true enemy and God's true enemy. That's what Paul's saying here in Ephesians chapter 6. He wears a lot of disguises. In the book of Ezra, he's going to be disguised as uh, false friendly neighbors, as corrupt government officials, as outright antagonists here. Listen, don't get your gifts in God's direction especially when you are uh, making progress, expect opposition. And be careful um, that you not only recognize the opposition, but it doesn't rob you of your passion and your calling to fulfill God's vision in your life. Now, you remember last week I told you that Haggai was a prophet who was contemporary with Ezra and Nehemiah. Okay, so in the book of Haggai, we're going to be reminded of another reason that vision fades, okay? and that's because of selfishness. Okay? So turn to the book of Haggai. It'll be easier if you have your Bible app. You can just tune it in there. Find it, that little two-chapter book in your uh, Old Testament if you have your Bibles with you. Listen, when the opposition came to building the temple, the people thought, well, this isn't working out, so instead of doing that, we'll just kind of do our own thing for a while, and they began building their own kingdom instead of building God's kingdom. And through Haggai, God is going to remind them that it wasn't right for them to build their lavish houses while God's house lie in ruins. In Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, we read these words. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, 
the time has not yet come to build the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains ruined? Then Haggai is going to give the people and us the weight of God's word. Listen to the words of verse 5 and let them sink in when God says through Haggai, Give careful thought to your ways. Wise advice for all of us, whether we're in a season of conquering or a season of being conquered, whether we're making progress or find ourselves opposed, give careful thought to your ways. Take stock of your life. Take stock of your priorities. And what have they brought? In the words of one of our, our former youth ministers, when when someone's describing their life and you know they're just plowing through in a way that's not God's way and, and like there's literally uh, devastation all around them, you know, just a simple phrase, well, how's that working for you? <laughs> so God says to the people of Israel, well, how's that working for you? And then he explains, look at verses 5 through 11. God says, you have planted much but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in purses filled with holes. You expected much, but see see it turned out to be little. What you brought home, God says, I blew away. The heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the field and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people, on livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. And don't miss verse 9. Why, God says? Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. The people heard the message, and it rang through we read that they feared God and that they honored God and that this word from God is ultimately what motivated them to to begin rebuilding again. Verse Verse 13 says, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. So when you find yourself frustrated, when you find that life isn't giving you enough, when you find that you're on the wrong track and you're getting the wrong results and you consider your ways and you take stock of things and and you answer the question, well, how's that working for you? And you say, well, not very well. How great to know that in the midst of all of that devastation, God says to them and to us and to us individually, God says, I am with you. See, God wanted his priority their priorities. So he sent Haggai to persuade them to obey and to honor God even when the circumstances are difficult. Listen, you and I know this truth. Like if we neglect to consider the priorities of God in our lives, we are always going to default to conforming to this world. And that's exactly what happened. They got discouraged. They felt the heat of the opposition. They thought, we'll just go do our own thing for a while and our own thing. Rarely, if ever, looks like God's thing. So Haggai reminds them, and he reminds us, 
at the hardships, the frustrations, the failures that they were experiencing, that they were actually God's doing to get their attention and to cause them to look at him. And he said the irony was that when they focused on their own wants and they stopped pursuing God, Selfishness never satisfied. God did not wire us to be selfish people. He wired us to be worshipers of him and in relationship with him and followers of his. God spoke through Haggai to his struggling people to remind them that he had called them and that he had brought them back for a purpose and that he wanted them to exercise faith over their exactly what they did. They needed to return to his purpose, and they did. Remember in Ezra 5 last week, we looked at how God used the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to stir Zerubbabel and Joshua and this nation to action. And that by Ezra chapter 6, they actually had rebuilt the temple, and there was actually celebration because of it. Not only that, but that the pagan king Darius paid for it. Just like Cyrus offered to pay for it the first time, Darius paid for it the second time. And not only did he do that, but he shut down the opposition. But he didn't do any of that until they moved forward in obedience. Now, think with me here at the end. The people who were once on fire for God's work, but they lost their vision, their passion, and they needed a new start. And God ignited that new start. God brings hope. He calls us to something better first by calling us back to himself. And he inspires human beings. There was work to be done, and God was going to get it done. But notice how he did it. He inspired people to do his work, to carry out his vision. And listen, you and I know that there's work to be done in our lives. And there's certainly work to be done in our church and in our community and for God's kingdom. God is going to do this, and he's going to do it by inspiring you and I, by inspiring us to obedience, by calling people to his quiet, quiet obedience, and by empowering us to face opposition. If you find yourself moving forward, then you know God is with you. But if you find yourself stalled out, frustrated, fearful, just kind of stop dead in your tracks spiritually. Take heed of God's word. He says, consider your ways. Remember that I am with you. And let's get back to what I called you to do. And he will be there to make sure it happens for us. Look at the warnings here. Let's pray. Our Father, the God who is with us, How many times have we started down your path only to stall out? How many times have we captured your vision because we were so close to you? We were worshiping you and you spoke to us, maybe even spoke through us. And yet the ways of this world are crowded out. You rule and you reign in our life. Lord, bring us back to you. Bring us back to your purposes. 
comes back to the life you promised you 